Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Working is brought to you by Slack. Slack brings all of your communication at work into one place. Create a new team right now at slack.com slate, and you'll get $100 in credit for when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan. That's slack.com slash slate. Welcome to Working, Slate's podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan, and I write about technology and culture for Slate. Like a lot of people these days, I've always been curious about where my food's from, which is part of why I'm so happy that we had the chance to talk with Nathan Anda this week. Anda is a butcher and a chef based here in Washington, D.C., some of the products that he makes, products that he sources from local farms, uh, go directly to customers at his Red Apron shops, while others end up on the menu at restaurants throughout the area, including his own space, Eat Bar. Though Anda runs a complex, large-scale operation, he's still closely involved with the fascinating actual work of butchery. We met with him at Eat Bar as the newly opened restaurant was setting up for service. He talked to us about how he sources the animals he uses in his butchery, getting into the real meat of farm-to-table cooking. Among other things, he talked to us about the process of making culatello, a kind of boneless, salty ham that you have to try if you have the chance. And in a Slate Plus Extra, Anda tells us about how he makes his hot dogs, which is, I confess, something I did not really realize that you could make without an industrial facility. To try out Slate Plus... Visit slate.com slash working plus for a two-week trial. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Nathan Anda and I work with uh, Red Apron Butchery, which has three butcher shops, three sandwich shops, and three restaurants now. So, How long have you been working as a butcher? I'd say I've been butchering animals for about 12 years, but in that time I was also chef of a couple restaurants. So, Where did you train? How did you get involved with butchery in particular? I taught myself. Uh, in the time of wanting to, I guess when I started, you know, really, you know, working with the whole animals, it was when, it was about 2004, 2005, and didn't want to, 
you know, I wanted to know where my meat was coming from, and I wanted to uh, not have something out of a box or a bag. So it started me going to farmer's markets and talking to the farmers about getting their product. And in order to get the product, I would have to get, you know, a whole side of a pig or a hind quarter of a cow. And then, you know, if it was a side of a pig, there was another 150 pounds that I had to figure out what to do with. So how is this whole animal butchery different from what you were doing before? Being a chef, you always look to kind of keep moving in a way. You get tired tired of doing the same thing over and over again. And that that is kind of what led like Red Apron to have the 400 plus products that we have is because, you know, you get 10 pigs a week, which I have to, within that I have all my butcher shops covered. I have to make sausages for the butcher shops, plus for the restaurants. I have to make all the meats for the sandwich shops and then also cover the charcuterie for the restaurants. But then there's always like, out of all that, there's always like, 25 to 30 pounds left which allows me to play around and then eventually it creates another product which then adds more chaos to my life <laughs> so where are we today what's the space that we're in this is eat bar uh it's in capitol hill opened a week ago today so. uh and it seems like it's still kind of under construction right now what's the what's the process there it's not so much under construction i think every day like like that you Every day after you open your restaurant, I guess you you know it's it's beautiful to begin with, and then you you start to figure out how oh, we can change the lighting over here and do this and this. And today they're just working on dimmers on the lights. How do you balance your butchering work with restaurant management? I have an awesome team. I really couldn't do it without you know I have three core people that work with me, uh, which they kind of allow me to you know be more positioned in the food side of it and they can oversee the management of you know running restaurants and butcher shops how involved are you at this point in the day-to-day work of butchering i'm there every morning i make the prep list i'm in there going through and looking at the animals all the time uh i guess with the amount of projects that we have going right now i don't get to do as much as I'd like to, or as much as, you know, this all started as me wanting to be more focused with meat. And, uh, I mean, I'm still totally focused with meat, but as we're opening these concepts, I have to be involved with them. So is there a typical day for you? Mm. Right now, I'd say it's very hard to have a typical day because this just opened and I spend more time here than I would at one of the existing restaurants. But it's anywhere between 8 in the morning, 7.38 in the morning, to I left here at 1 o'clock on Monday night. Uh, Last night, left here by 9 o'clock. So uh, yesterday I was able to hit every single property, though, which I haven't done in a week. So it was big. On a week when you're less focused on opening a restaurant, Mm -hmm. uh, what's the first thing you do usually? I always go to the commissary, production facility, uh, check the inventory and then looking at the inventory then and the numbers and I have to then kind of project what I expect to do in the next week to a month and then that'll kind of set up uh, how I will go forward with you know what will go on to menus and what can be a special and what has to change and whatever 
So that usually takes me from 8.30 to 11 on a Monday. And then from 11 till like 2, I get to actually work on all the things, like go through with all the cooks and the butchers and everything and tell them exactly how I want some certain things moving forward for the rest of the day and for the week. And then I go over the recipes and yields. And then by 2 o'clock, I usually am freed up to start going to the businesses that are open. And then usually by 6 o'clock, I'll get back to the commissary, do the orders, uh, make sure everything that's going out to the stores is going out correctly, talk to my managers there, make sure that we're ordering all the right stuff. And then if it's Monday, which we're talking now is Monday, my pigs usually show up at 7.30, between 6.30 and 7.30. P.M.? Yep, and I'll be there to oversee the getting them off the delivery truck and checking them and then looking at the invoice which is always it's not that fun uh, and then i'll make the prep list for tuesday and then i'll by that time it's probably seven thirty, eight o'clock and i'll probably go back out to one of the restaurants and stay for a couple hours for service where and how do you source uh, the animals that you use we work with the growing co-op in north carolina that raises pigs for us and we go down every Monday and pick them up and drive them back. So, How many do you get a week? Anywhere between 10 and 20. This week, with opening day being tomorrow, we, uh, we are selling a ton of sausages and hot dogs. So with doing that, it kind of uh, depleted our inventory of stuff. So next week, the plan is to get 20 in and kind of build our inventory back up. So, Can we talk cost? What does a single pig from this kind of source cost for you? You don't have to talk about it if you're not comfortable. I, I mean, it's, I'm not uncomfortable. I just I don't want anyone out there to go source their pigs from this guy because it's <laughs> an awesome price. Uh, I mean... Yeah, is that? there an average cost to, to the number of animals you bring in a week? No. The cost changes if I go for a different size pig. Like to me, I think a 250 to 280 pound hog is perfect for us. Like I'm planning on like 20 pigs is going to yield me around 10 to 11,000 pounds. And that's what I want next week because I want 10 to 11,000 pounds. So, so you go through 10 to 11,000 pounds of pig meat a week? Possibly. In your restaurants? We'll see. Nah, I mean, that's production, everything. That's with a lot of bones. Um, Like last week, it was 6,000. What state are the animals in when you pick them up? North Carolina. (laughs) Sorry, what? uh, Oh, uh, they're dead. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I I once went to a a pig butchery class Mm -hmm. on the farm, and, and one of the things that surprised me was that the actual slaughtering had to happen off-site in FDA. Oh, yeah. I mean, these so, I mean, these pigs are actually delivered on a Thursday to the slaughter facility, and they are put into uh, kind of holding quarters where they're actually allowed to uh, – it's not a, a cage by any means. It's a pretty big area, and it allow, allows them to get acclimated to the – environment to actually it helps them with their uh slaughter it's not as a stress slaughter so it's pretty nice 
how do they actually kill the pigs in the they're, facility? They're stunned with a stun gun, and then, uh, like, it's a really fast process. So it's like they're stunned, and then they're uh, bled out. Is so, that when they're hanging them, that, yep. that they bleed them out? So it's like, it's a really fast process. You go in, and they're kind of, it's called a hugger. It, it hugs them, so it makes them feel comfortable. And then they can stun it, and by the time it's stunned, they already have the uh, hooves hooked. So it can go up and then blood out, so it never, it doesn't have any chance to feel the pain. Do they take out the entrails and such then, or is that something you do in your facility? I mean, they do that for us. So they are uh, slaughtered and hung and uh, scalded, which is removing all the hair. And then they're, uh, you know, gutted, I guess, uh, and all the entrails are removed in there picked out and they save the ones I want so I always want the hearts and the livers and the kidneys uh, they also send me the spleens which I never ask for uh, but I always manage to get those and then uh, the leaf lard which is the kidney fat wrapped around the tenderloins which is awesome stuff and that's actually what we have our fryers here at Eat Bar filled with leaf lard so when you're actually breaking down a pig, where do you start? What's the first step? We look at it. The first step is to remove, like, the tenderloin. And then once the tenderloin's removed, we'll kind of think of what we want to do with it. So if it's a week that I need a ton of sausage, then we're still going to break the primals out and remove the shoulder and then the leg. The head's already been removed for us. What are the primals? Uh, the shoulder... The belly, so the shoulder, imagine a side of a pig is laid out in front of you. It would be head, shoulder, belly, and loin section. And then you have the, the leg. So, What are the most difficult parts of that process? For me, there's not a lot of difficult processes there. It's a, you, get to, you do so much of it, it becomes like, it's very easy. So a lot of it is like... You know, when you're thinking utilization, you want to follow seams and you're very methodical of, you know, hitting between the bones correctly. Basically, what I want is for it to be the same all the time. Uh, Working with forged pigs, nothing is ever the same. But if we're butchering them the same, then I can have the same final product. So if I have a 300-pound pig and a 240-pound pig, the loins and the bellies are always they're going to be different, but once we're done butchering them, they'll still be two pounds, three pounds off, but they'll be cut at the right, you know, angles and you know between the right bones. What kind of tools do you use to to take these components out? Are there special knives or saws or other things that I have you a bring lot of really neat tools? Uh, I mean, the most effective one is a sharp knife, um, and then. We have a bandsaw, we have handsaws, we have, I mean, I think, you know, when you're, I learned a long time ago, the bigger the knife, the bigger the wound, you know, it's like, uh, it's going to hurt more (laughs) when it comes down and cuts your finger off. So I like to do everything with a, uh, like the five to six inch uh, poking knife, it's what it's called. It's a pointy tip. And it can help me kind of zero in on where I want to go. And then when I find the seam I want, I can follow it through. And if it's a straight cut, I can get a bigger knife and cut down. So, 
Do you want your knife to be flexible? Should it be able to bend? or? or I mean, it if really it depends in certain areas, you definitely, they. it's good to have both. You know, if you have a flexible knife, you know, it's, it's it can kind of help follow certain things. But, uh, you know, it can also slide right off of stuff and kind of go where you don't want it to. So. You, you've talked a little about following the seams or the mm-hmm. lines. What does that mean? There's, like, natural seams to muscles, and, uh, you know, if you were to, like, when you, when you cut something down straight down, you're, you're, you're losing that seam. You know, if you follow the seam, then you're following the muscle. So you're actually following it to where it ends, and then you can peel it out and do what you want with it. You've been listening to Butcher Nathan Anda. In a minute, he tells us about how he and his team break down those regionally sourced whole animals to create the products that he uses in his restaurants and sells in his shops. This episode of Working has been sponsored by Slack, the messaging and file sharing platform for teams. At Slate, we use Slack to coordinate coverage of breaking news, to plan out articles with editors, and even to decide what we should do for lunch. But I think my favorite thing that's happened on Slate Slack recently was the time when we all used it to confess our deep, abiding, and surprisingly mutual love for the actor Oscar Isaac. So if you want to share your love for Oscar Isaac, Slack might be the right platform for you. And even if you have more professional needs, Slack still has a lot to offer, uh, including seamless integration of all sorts of cool bots, smooth file sharing options, and my own favorite feature, a reminder function that helps me meet deadlines. Visit slack.com slate, create a new team, and you'll get $100 in credit for when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan. How do you work to minimize waste? Filling our fryers with lard was one. Uh, basically, trying to find uses for byproduct is the best way to like work with fixing your yields. We get a lot of bones, so we, we can sell stocks retail. We sell stocks to all of the restaurants within the Red Apron properties. We can braise in stocks as opposed to starting with water. Uh, we can reduce stocks and create glosses or gels or whatever. And then it, it also creates a really good hamburger. So, uh, or... Do you serve those here? We have good hamburgers here, yeah. May come back but for we also day. do a pork burger here as well. So with uh, being whole animal, you can, you, you kind of, you, you pick out all your prime pieces, whether it's a cow or a pig. And then you're, you know, you're left with this other pile over here. But it, you know, as you're cleaning everything in your expensive pile, you're you have expensive trim going into your other pile of trim. You know what I mean? So it's like you're cleaning tenderloins. You get, you know, part of the tenderloin can go into the grind. You're cleaning your New York strip or your sirloin, so that goes into your grind. You know, and then it's like as you're looking at it, it could be looking fatty. So you're say, okay, well, you have to clean the hindquarter, which has, you know, it's more solid muscle, top round, bottom round, and eye around. And as you clean those, you know, you're going to create lean, you know, scrap that can go in there. And then it's uh, getting to be the 75-25 mix that I want. Are there ever any components that you absolutely can't use when you're breaking down an animal? 
Yeah, the spleens. <laughs> Just kidding. No. At the end of the week, you have a lot of, like, you get three cows, you get three tongues, three hearts, you know. So, you know, you can't, those two products freeze really well. So those can go into the freezer, and I can actually create a stockpile. I'll wait until I can get 10 hearts, and then I'll make a heart salami. So at the Partisan, we have a, a smoked heart salami. And then uh, we also do a pig heart salami. We do pig heart pastrami. Uh, and we corn the tongues. So it's like I, I, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do to make these big brines and then you know only throw one thing into it. So I got to wait until they have you know 10 to 20 things and then it can create enough that I can then send it to one restaurant and then they can run it for a week and then we'll start back over and start generating more in our so like here oh so a good example of another cool thing that we end up with is chicken wings so we do a smoked chicken salad uh at the other properties and you know you don't yield a lot of meat off the chicken wing so we just cut the chicken wings off and then i can set them aside and then there now the chicken wings are now on the menu here so because i have enough and i can keep up with my 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 inventory and my my needs um can we talk about charcuterie a little bit sure uh what sorts of preserved meats do you sell name it i got it i mean i do a lot of hams i got prosciuttos and we also do culatellos so culatello is the it's basically the hamstring it's a it's the a ham that's been deboned and uh once it's been deboned it's actually tied back and then cured and over the curing process it kind of solidifies itself back into a nice round beautiful ham so what's the first step when you're going to make a kilotello you got to debone the ham first of all you'd remove the pelvis bone then you remove the femur and then you would you know look for all the little blood pockets and everything and get that out of there clean that all up cleaning up all the inside, getting rid of all the glands, clean the fat side, get all the the skin off, as well as uh, making sure there's no blemishes in the fat, and then tying it. Do you apply a cure before you tie it off or after? After it's tied. Is there any seasoning or anything that goes inside uh, where the bone was? It's all just tied up, and it's all natural. What's the cure? Salt. Salt. Just sea salt. Just straight, ordinary sea salt? Yep, we use a sea salt from California. It'll go into a room that is about 38 degrees. It's about two days per pound. So it's usually looking at like 30 days is where we're, we're looking then. 30 days out, what are you looking for? We're looking for the amount of water that came out of it, the firmness of the muscle. And then after it's uh, taken out of cure, it's rinsed with a pool of wine white wine and water and then it's kind of rinsed then we stuff it into a bladder which is then tied up again and then we'll take the weight at that point and then we will put it into our curing room and then we'll just how, how much see longer? it in a year or so in, yeah. so it, a year it takes to get it to an edible state 
Yeah, I mean, you're you're looking at water loss at that point then, and, and that's why you take the weight on things beforehand. So, like, we're expecting to lose 35 to 40% water. So if it's, you know, I'll take the weight, and then I won't even look at it before nine months. And, I mean, preferably I wouldn't cut it down before a year. So all told, we're talking 13, 14 months mm-hmm. for a project like this. Yep. What are the economics of something like that? For you as a restaurateur and and as a business person? Well, I mean, it's people love, or maybe not love, but, you know, one of the things that people recognize with charcuterie is prosciutto or cured ham, you know, so it's, and uh, I think for, for us, it's something that's automatically, like, before we even look at pricing, people already expect it to be a little expensive, and that's just due to it already like the market already being set and that's coming from companies that do it you know for a long time and they they know the the loss and everything so um the one thing that we never i mean it 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 basically you have to look at the rent that goes into that ham taken up in your uh curing room as well like salamis are nice because they're three months uh, but hams, so it's like I like to do my hams in packs of like 15 to 20. So I know when, you know, they can go into an area and then I'll, you know, I will start them again. 20 of them would last me for a, a bit, you know, a good amount of time. So they work in sections and uh, I'm always looking to replace hams when I take them down. So. Cool. Um- what about making sausages? Is that as involved? Yeah, definitely. I mean, sausages are, I mean, they're easy to, it's like a gateway drug for making sauce, or, uh, charcuterie is, is a sausage. But they're easy to make wrong, you know, and a lot of it comes down to meat-to-fat ratio and emulsification. So if you're not... Uh, like if the meat is too warm when you're trying to make a sausage, the fat will smear and it will uh, not make a nice emulsification. Same with uh, if it's too cold, it won't give the chance, the fat a chance to mix nicely. What is a, sorry, what is an emulsification in context of a sausage? What are you looking for? I guess you're looking for it to be. You want it to be juicy and not dry. So it's if you're cooking a sausage, you want it to have a good, uh, like you bite into it, you want it to, to be juicy, which means the fat would have stayed in, you know, throughout the cooking process within, like bound within everything. If, if you're cooking a sausage and you see all the fat is outside of the sausage, that means the fat separated and it's going to lead to a, a drier sausage. Uh, I'm sorry. What uh, what steps do you have to take in these various environments that you work in, not just the mm-hmm. restaurants, but also the um, the commissary, mm-hmm. uh, to ensure food safety? I mean, it's we take we have a lot of it is you have to worry about cross contamination, temperatures, shelf lives, everything, uh, and it's constant. It's, Every hour of the day, you're paying attention to it. On your website, you stress that uh, your pork comes from animal welfare-approved farms. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about that a little earlier, but can you say more about what that means and why it's important to you? 
I mean, we want to believe that we're using a product that, you know, I mean, we believe quality instead of quantity. Animal welfare is one of the few organizations that actually sees something from start to finish. Like they uh, oversee how these animals are bred, raised, and all the way to slaughter. And we believe that's a great process. Is that just for the pork, or do you insist on similar standards for other other meats that you use? You know, we would love it to be all um, products, and we're working towards that right now. We work with, you know, a couple different beef farmers that are uh, animal welfare approved, and then we have some that aren't. And the goal is to be 100% in the future. So. Is this primarily an ethical issue for you, or is it a culinary one as well? both a happy animal you'd want to imagine you know these animals had a good life you know they're fed right they're not held in captivity they put a ton of pride and passion into raising these amazing animals and we want to you know our goal is to be able to you know show them off in the right way last question i asked my girlfriend i told her that i was interviewing you Mm -hmm. and i said do you have any questions for him and she said and i quote how do they make their sandwiches so f***ing delicious? Ah, that's a secret. No, I, I think we've always looked at our sandwiches as like an entree. You know, it's like you, on an entree, you have a protein, a starch, a veg, and a sauce. So, you know, you look at the sandwich and you have the starch being the bread. So you want to start with, you want to have a good piece of bread. The proteins, like we've gone out of our way to like make sure like take the time and effort to make the the quality meats on the inside and then you know the garnish shouldn't just be looked upon as just a thing that you put on top so that's awesome that she said that but it's sometimes not a lot of people see it that way she loves what you do awesome well thank you thank you so much thank you thanks for listening to this episode of working i'm jacob brogan We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is working at slate.com. And you can listen to all six seasons at slate.com slash working. This episode was produced by the tremendously talented Mickey Capper. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai. And the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers. In a Slate Plus Extra, Andy tells us how he makes his hot dogs. To try out Slate Plus... Visit slate.com slash working plus for a two-week trial. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows granger has got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.